Um, if you have, at some point in your life, made the decision to put your trust in a Savior, that is, to depend upon uh, a Savior, Christ, who died on the cross and bore your sin, to depend upon Him rather than depend upon yourself to be good enough and earn salvation. If you've trusted a Savior, then the Bible says that you're a new person, you're a new creation. And, and it only makes sense, doesn't it, if, if the sovereign God of the universe has entered your life, your soul, uh, which he did, uh, that, that is such a radical change. You've got God inside you. It's so radical that Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, would describe it as being born again, you know, like a, a whole new birth. And in fact, the Bible teaches that some 33 things happened to you the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. Uh, things like uh, the Spirit of God comes inside you. All of your sins are wiped away and erased as far as these is from the West. You're, you're made right with God, or, or the Bible calls it righteousness. You, you're made right with God. You're, you're, you're given eternity with God. You, you're a citizen of heaven. You're adopted as His Son. And, and on and on, you're a new creation. So it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? That if we are in Christ, new creations, that we cannot live like we once lived before Christ. And also, doesn't it make sense that if there are non-Christians around us on our neighborhood, workplace, various places, which there are, that probably our lives are going to be different than those of a non-Christian if we are new creatures. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ... If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, when, when the Bible talks about us being new people, it, it doesn't mean there are different people. It doesn't mean that we're different in, in so many externals. I mean, we still need food, drink, water, and clothing, and uh, meaningful companionship, and meaningful work, all those kind of things. That doesn't change. But in terms of deep perspectives and values, in terms of of the power source that we live out of, in terms of how we see uh, the important things in life, we're very different. We're very new. And that's the perspective we're going to see in our passage this morning. So with all of that background, before I got to the passage, I wanted you to hear that. We're new creatures. We're new creatures. We're new creation. Please, please stand and let me read today's passage. So we're in Ephesians 4. Notice what God says about that we're new and therefore we should be different. Ephesians 4, 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Church, this is God's Word to us. Please be seated. So, you, you heard the language. We're new creatures, we're new creatures, new self, 
put away the old self, got a renewed mind. We can't live like we once lived. Now, the passage is so rich about the sort of life we have in God as new creatures that I cannot get to the whole paragraph uh, just today, unless we chose to go for a 60-minute message rather than a 30-minute message. But uh, apart from that, I assume that most of you don't prefer that, uh, we'll finish it next week and just take the first half of the passage. Now, the whole chapter in Ephesians 4 began with Paul talking about You've got to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. If you're going to be Christ followers, if you have Christ inside of you, you cannot walk like you once walked. You've got to walk in a new manner. And then he picks up on that in our passage when he says in 17, he says, do not walk as the Gentiles walked. Don't live like that. Now, these Gentiles, if you're newer with us or not a lot of background in these sort of things, in the Old Testament, there were Jews and everybody else, and they were called Gentiles. They were God's chosen people, special people, and everybody else, which includes most of us, non-Jews, called Gentiles. But here, Paul is writing to a Gentile church in Ephesus. They're not Jewish. Some of them probably are, but most of them are Gentiles, like you and me, like most of us. And he's saying, you can no longer live like the Gentiles. And so now he's using the term a little bit differently, in the Old Testament, the non-Jews, now it's the non-Christians. And those of you who don't follow Christ, that, that he would call them at this point Gentiles. And he says, you cannot live like the Gentiles live because you're not the people that you once were. You can't live like you once did. And so he begins to describe that. He describes that in about seven phrases. He first of all says, he describes them as having the futility of their minds. And then he says... In verse 18, darkened in their understanding, then alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, then due to the hardness of heart, become callous, they've given themselves up to sensuality, and they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So he's describing what life is like outside of Jesus Christ with these six or seven pretty strong phrases, quite strong phrases. Now, let's unpack them a bit. His first descriptor of life outside of Christ, of the Gentiles, is that they live in the futility of their minds. Now, think about how Paul takes one word, futility, to sum up all of the Roman Greco culture, including Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, Seneca, Thucydides, Plutarch, all of the great thinkers of the Greek world and the Roman world, he says they may be brilliant, but they live in futility because they don't understand what life is really all about. And he wraps up the whole culture in that one word. Paul could also wrap up the entire American culture that we swim in in one word. He could take every uh, university professor and uh, cultural media elite and uh, those who are behind movies and television and, and so much of the publishing world and, and describe that world as they, they live in futility, the futility of their minds because they're outside of Christ. Let's be more specific. Let's think about some of the people that we know who seemingly have so much. They may be, have very successful careers and live in uh, big houses and drive expensive sports cars and be fit and tanned and beautiful and have all these fancy clothes. But if they're outside of Christ, the Bible would say they live in futility, 
futility. They're, moreover, they are darkened, the next phrase, they're darkened in their understanding. They're in the dark spiritually and intellectually. They're in the dark about God. The point is not, the problem is not their intelligence. The problem is they lack wisdom for what life is all about. So it's not an IQ issue. It's more of a WQ issue, a wisdom quotient issue. They, there are people around us with brilliant minds and advanced degrees, but devoid of understanding. They're darkened in their understanding. Six years ago, I read a biography, the authorized biography of Stephen Jobs. Now, I'm not a computer guy, as everybody on our staff knows, uh, but I wanted to understand Stephen Jobs and his world because he had been so influential in our culture. And before he died of pancreatic cancer, he called one of my favorite writers, Walter Isaacson, who I'd read for years, and um, got him to write his biography. And, and he said, and, and no holes barred either. So Isaacson writes this biography about, uh, he describes Jobs as a creative genius at the intersection of art and technology. He described him as revolutionizing six industries in our world. Personal computers, music, phones, animated movies, digital publishing, and tablet computing. It's amazing what he, what he accomplished. In fact, he says that he will be known as the, as the main most influential innovator of our generation and that he will be looked at in history right on a par with guys like Henry Ford and Thomas Edison in terms of revolutionizing our world. Moreover, he built a company, Apple, that not only has become iconic for its style and innovation, but it was the world's largest company by the time of his death in 2011. Incredibly successful. Moreover, Jobs could at times be charming, charismatic, and very likable. However, he was perhaps the biggest narcissist I have ever read about. He um, could be brutal on other people with his, uh, at times, uh, uh, such direct criticism and so harsh. He had a problem with honesty. Uh, everyone around knew that he distorted reality, and at times it seemed like he wasn't aware of it. He was a control freak extraordinaire. He was driven, intense, and perfectionistic, all of which probably helped him make the great products that he made. Uh, from a young age, he was, uh, from a young man, he had riches that were so unusual, and yet he always seemed to care much more about the product than the profit. He was just an enigma of a man. But let me tell you, when I finished this 400-page book, this was my overwhelming thought. Here is this brilliant man who was a lost soul. There is so much emptiness in that man's life. And it was so sad. It was so sad. And he would be the epitome of someone who was brilliant in their intellect, but living in futility with a darkened understanding and not understanding what life is all about. I came across this quote once that grabbed me, and this is what the writer said. He said, both in history and in life, it is a phenomenon by no means rare to meet with comparatively unlettered people who seem to have struck profound spiritual depths, while there are many highly educated people of whom one feels that they are performing clever antics with their minds to cover a gaping hollowness within. And that is so true. 
just hang out with it around the university world. And you see the gaping hollowness within. Now, this is what the Bible describes as reality for those who are outside of Christ. Dark and understanding, futility of their mind. Now, could I just have a little time out and say at this point the American church makes a bad mistake. Our response to our culture around us, because at times we get so frustrated by our culture, is anger, self-righteousness, and condescension. Friends, that is not Christ-like. That is worldly. When Jesus Christ saw people who were hurting and helpless, he responded not with condescension and anger, but with compassion. With compassion. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the multitudes and and saw that they were, were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion for them. And church, that must be our response to our culture that is outside of Christ. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be in the same place. And we were in the same place before God's mercy and grace rescued us. And so, as I describe our culture, our response and heart attitude must never be condescension and self-righteousness, but it must be compassion and grace and love. Okay, a third characteristic. He describes them as alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, if you're alienated from the life of God, who's the source of all life in the world, then in the universe, that means you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You lack life. And that, in fact, is what God said in Ephesians 2.1, that those outside of Christ are spiritually dead. They're, they're outside the life of God. But they're, they're, it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, friends, that's the third description in a row of non-Christians that involve the mind and thinking. Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, and because of the ignorance that is in them. And so rebellion against God is ultimately a matter. It's a matter of our thinking, our thoughts. We, we lack the truth about what the universe is all about. It begins in their mind. And, and therefore, it is so critical that uh, we have our minds renewed. And now, when we trust Christ as our Savior, there is a renewal. But if we don't pursue the Lord and walk with the Lord, then uh, all that futility and ignorance and darkness is just going to come right back, flowing right back. And we're going to live as any non-Christian would. So we've got to continually have our minds renewed. In fact, Romans 12, 2 says that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, friends, uh, this is how our minds get renewed. This is how we uh, uh, get changed from that former manner of life with a darkened understanding, ignorance, and futile thinking. And that is, we soak our minds in God's Word every day. Now, Now, just think with me. You may have trusted Christ as your Savior, and you have eternal life and salvation. But if you're not pursuing the Lord and walking with the Lord, spending time with God, then if you're filling your mind with 20 hours a week or so, maybe more, of, of, of non-Christian uh, TV programming, magazine books, things on the Internet, if you're just filling your mind with the world's mind rather than with God's mind, is that going to not uh, squeeze you into its mold and conform you to the world? It is. Absolutely is. And so, at least, you know, sometime every day, we need to get, get away from the, the, the words of man, of humans, and get alone with the words of God and say, God, would you speak to me with timeless words? Not timely words, 
just, but, but timeless words, the words of God. It is absolutely essential. I mean, you can't expect to come to church a couple of times a month, hear a 30-minute message from God's Word, and that counteract 20, 30 hours a week, all week, of hearing worldly words. We've got to have the Word of God. The founder of the Methodist Church, who had such an impact on England, was a fellow by the name of John Wesley. And he was once talking to believers about, uh, he called them private exercises, that is, this time of prayer and Bible reading. This is what he said. Notice how very strong he is on it. He says about this time of prayer and Bible study, he says, Oh, begin. Fix some part of every day for private exercises. Whether you like it or not, read and pray daily. It is for your life. There is no other way, else you will be a trifler all your days. A trifler. That is someone who's just kind of uh, uh, messing around with the things of God. Not serious about the things of God, but a trifler, a dilettante, an amateur, a baby. But if you are serious about the things of God, then you will prize this as the Word of the living God, and you will get along with God before an open Bible every day. I urge you to do so. Now, that's three descriptors, all involving the mind. But now he's going to go a step below the mind. And when he says in the next verse, 18, that they live in their hardness of heart. And then he quickly follows that by saying they are callous. Again, hardened in their heart. Beneath the resistant mind toward God that rejects the truths of God, there is a hardened heart that does not want to obey God. And so the ultimate issue is not just intellectual, it's moral. It's I don't want to obey. I don't want to live like God tells me to live. I want to live like I want to live. That's why it's so vital, church, to pray for our top five, because only God can change the human heart. There's a hard heart there, and only God can change it. And so we pray, and you know, we want to love and reach out and share our faith, but, but we've got to ask God, God, would you open blind eyes? God, would you soften hard hearts? And so we pray daily that God would change them. You know, uh, there are a lot of folks who have intellectual reasons for rejecting Christ. Uh, they think that that's the main reason, but the Bible would say that, no, no, beneath that is resistance to God, a hardness of heart, a stiff-forming God out of their lives. They don't want to obey God. Many of us are C.S. Lewis fans. He's my writer. He wrote 30, 40 books. My favorite C.S. Lewis book is a fairly unknown book called surprised by joy. And it's basically the story of his first 30 years of life, a time when he was a non-Christian. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor and considered himself an atheist. Uh, God used J.R.R. Tolkien to lead him to Christ and some others. And at age 30, he moved from atheism to theism and then later to Christianity and embraced Christ. Later, he wrote his story. And he said when he was outside of Christ, this is what he said about himself, he said, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. He said, there was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, that one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. 
some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Friends, that's behind human sin. Our rebellion against God, mine. We tend to play God in our own world and in our own life. The hardness of heart, callous hearts. Now, that's going to give expression to all kind of sin. And this is how he describes it, verse 19. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Friends, both here and elsewhere, this is what the Bible teaches. If society as a whole rejects God, eventually it's going to come, come out in all kinds of sexual perversion. And it's going to get worse and worse. Now, could I not ask, is that not true of the world we live in, of our culture? I mean, compared today to the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, where, man, if there was, you know, too much, uh, 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 not enough clothing on the movies, you know, uh, but, but now, no big deal. You know, people wouldn't think twice about it. And, and it's not just that uh, there is so much pornography, hard pornography or soft pornography, you know, on the screens in homes across America, rampant, but there's so much sexual sin of all kinds, heterosexual and homosexual sin, gender confusion, now even marriage confusion. I mean, people don't know what's up. And, and um, uh, it is not going to get better in our country apart from a widespread turning to Jesus Christ. It is going to get worse and worse for our children and our grandchildren. Now, we're praying that Houston would become a great city of God. One of the ways we're going to see that is that the places for human trafficking and uh, uh, other kind of establishments are going to close down and people are going to live their lives like God has made us and designed us to live. And that is not with casual serial sex outside of marriage because God knows that sex is such a precious gift and so powerful. I mean, for heaven's sakes, uh, a man and a woman can have sex together and bring into being a, a, a little being that's going to last for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. I mean, that's incredible, the power of sex. And it can be so good and so rich that it is just too powerful to mess around with casually with any person around you. The human heart and soul was not uh, designed for that kind of heartbreak and pain that's given way to all kind of pain and travesty in our society, including divorce, abortion, uh, broken marriages, all kinds of things, children with broken hearts. I say to you, with all my heart, if you are enmeshed in sexual sin of any kind, pornography, men or women, premarital sex, extramarital sex, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, any kind. Friends, it needs to stop because it is not a benign thing. It is defiant rebellion against a holy God and how he has created you. You're trying to violate, it's like trying to violate the law of gravity. And you're going to get hurt and you're going to hurt other people. Let us help you. Let us help you. We've got lay counselors. We've got, we refer you to professional counselors. We've got healing prayer ministries. Uh, we've got a, a, a group of folks who once lived in sexual addiction who have been healed by Jesus, and they, they want to help others 
who, who live in the bondage of that. Let us help you. You don't have to live that way. You're a new creature. You can't live that way. You're in Christ. Okay. If we rebel against God, it's going to come out eventually in sexual perversity. of all kinds. And by the way, both in Ephesians 4 and Romans 1, we find these similar patterns of the, of the patterns of sin. Of the, it's going to express itself in a futile thinking, the foolish thinking. And then the, beneath that's going to be a, a spiritual death or judgment. And then there's going to be hardness of heart. And it's going to ultimately come out in sexual immorality, one way or the other. It will. Now, at this point, there is a great contrast in the passage. When he says in verse 20, after describing with six or seven phrases, life is a non-Christian, he says, but that is not how you learned Christ. Completely different for you because you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, but that is not the way you learned Christ. You're different. You're a new creation. I like it that he did not say that is the way you learned about Christ. When we come to Christ, we don't get, get, gain some knowledge. We get a Savior who comes in our life. Uh, this is not a philosophy. This is not a religion. This is a personal relationship with the living God who became man to die for me on my cross. And we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. He's my whole life. That is not the way you learned Christ. That's not how you live. You cannot live like you once lived because you're not the person you once were. And again, that's not in a bunch of little externals. That is in deep internals in terms of our values, in terms of our perspectives, in terms of our power source, very deep things. And church, I would say that the American church, when it comes to living differently, uh, has been an abysmal failure that the American church is about a mile wide and an inch deep. And our lives all too often look no differently than non-Christians that we live with, work with, work with uh, go to the gym with, and other sorts of things. And it must not be so. Our Savior is worthy of our following Him with all of our hearts. And this is what He's designed us to live like. In closing, let me give you seven brief ways in which the culture is in which the church in America is capitulating to the culture in America and we're just being conformed and squeezed into its mold. Let me give you seven things. First of all, we tend to follow the American dream rather than God's dream. We're just like the rest of the world. It's life is all about accumulation of more and more stuff, more and more things. The badge of success is money, houses, and things like that. That is pursuing the American dream rather than God's dream, and we should know better. By the way, the sure test that you are probably captured by the American dream, if you're a Christ follower, if you don't give much, the Bible says that money is the test. If you're giving a, you know, a tithe or so to God, then that's a good clue that you are not living for the American dream but for God's dream. I hope that's true of you. Secondly, Eternal perspective. Are you living for this world? Now think about it. 80 years compared to eternity is like a few microseconds compared to 80 years. Are you living your whole world preoccupied by this world or the next world where you're going to spend endless eternity? If you are in Christ, you know better. We're going to live for the next world because that's what counts. We're laying up our treasure in heaven, not on earth. Third, this is a big one. 
power source. We as Christians tend to do just what any non-Christian would do. Let's try harder on our own strength to live the Christian life, and it doesn't work. It's an exercise in frustration, guilt, and futility. But we have got the power of the Holy Spirit inside us. And so when we want to, to change from any of these areas, including sexual addiction or anything else, we don't say, you know, i got to try harder. That is worldly. What we say is, I cannot do that. But God can. Oh, Lord, would you change me? Would you fill me afresh with your Spirit? And would you change me? We are not like those that Paul said, hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. Our whole power source is the power of God in the Holy Spirit. Third one, fourth one, sex. I've already talked about that a good bit. But do you recognize that sex is a beautiful and powerful gift of God uh, given to every married couple? Or do you see other people around you as sexual objects to use or abuse? Do you, do you see folks of the opposite sex as primarily sexual beings and therefore sexual objects? Or are they human beings, precious in the sight of God, perhaps brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? How do you see other people? I mean, horror, you're, you're looking at naked bodies as if they are not image bearers of the living God? Sex, we see it completely differently. Divorce, if there's any area that we're the same, it's divorce. Now, I understand many of you have been divorced, so many, and there are biblical reasons for divorce, but they are few and far between compared to what our culture is going to. Now, if you go into marriage with the mindset, hey, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced, then you're going to get divorced. Gail certainly would have divorced me in the first year. But if you're going to, 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 to marriage with the idea, come hell or high water, we're going to work through this thing then you will work through this thing with, by the grace of God and the help of God, and you can survive. And by God's grace, Gail and I did that, and we've got a wonderful marriage today. I love that woman. And, and so many couples give up too soon. And just about any time is too soon. The divorce rate in the church is just as bad as the divorce rate anywhere else. And God says, I hate divorce because it destroys the human heart. It brings so much pain. Um, one more. Well, no, two more. Identity. All righty. How do you see yourself? Do you, do you see yourself primarily in terms of your vocation like any non-Christian around you? Do you? Are you primarily engineer, businessman, homemaker, teacher, uh, pilot? Is that who you are? Or do you see yourself primarily in terms of relationships in a family? I'm primarily a mother. I'm primarily a husband. I'm primarily a wife. Now, those things may be true, but that's not who you really are. This is who you really are. You are a much-loved, blood-bought, fully adopted child of the living God, and that's who you are, and no amount of accomplishments or financial success or the lack of is going to change that, who you are. You are set in Jesus Christ, much loved by God. That's our identity. And then one more, and that is the gospel itself, because this is what the, the Bible says that the gospel is. It is about trusting a Savior who died on the cross in our, in, our, in our place. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible teaches that He is fully God and He's fully man. And God took all of your sin, all of my sin, and put them on Jesus Christ, and He died in my place. And that's how I get to heaven, for a Savior. I put my trust in Him, all of my trust in Him. Now, this is how Christianity does it. This is how religion does it. Every religion in the world, except the gospel, and 
four-fifths of Christianity around the world. I've got to, uh, I've got to uh, try hard and be good to please God and get into heaven. That is very different than me pleasing God, than me obeying God because I want to be accepted by God, than the gospel says, I want to obey God because I have been accepted by God. Because of a Savior who's already washed my sins wider than snow, give me eternal life, because of a Savior, I'm no longer on a performance trip. I'm no longer about religion. I'm no longer trying to grant acceptance. I have been accepted by the living God. Yay, God. That's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel. And not only do our neighbors not know that, so much of people and so many people in the church don't know that. They've sort of reverted after coming to Christ through the gospel. They've reverted to religion. Don't do that. Don't do that. Church, this is what God says about you. You're a new creation. You're born again. You can't live like you once lived. Now, church, in closing, let me just ask you, what, what is the Spirit of God saying to you this morning? Is the Spirit of God putting His finger on any area of your life and saying, that's got to change? You're, you're, you're just like the world at this point. If so, if so, respond to Him. Why don't you just pray silently? Why don't you ask God, Lord, is there anything I need to hear from you about this? Perhaps you'll hear just a, a word will come to your mind and give it to him. Give it to him. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you thought this was about religion, about churchianity, it's not. It's gospel. Free grace of Jesus. Just say yes to Jesus right now. Trust him to save you. He'll do it. Let one of us know. Lord, we love you because you first loved us, and we bless you with all our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.